0: Hello, everyone and welcome to classic gaming today where we take a look at the gaming experiences of the past through the eyes of the present i'm your host tony and today we're going to look at broken sword a third-person point-and-click adventure title developed by revolution software and published by virgin interactive released on the microsoft windows computer platform back in 1996 with ports to both the apple macintosh and sony playstation in the years that followed We're going to talk about that title in just a couple minutes, but first, as is usual, just a little bit of housekeeping up front. This is episode number 74. I am excited to be here. I hope all of you are as well. If you'd like to reach out, let me know how I'm doing. Provide feedback, comments, suggestions, or just talk about classic games and technology in general. I would love to hear from you, and there are a few ways you can reach out. I have an X account with the handle at Classic Gaming T. I have an email address, which is ClassicGamingToday at gmail.com. And we have a Discord server. The link is in the show notes. Discord is the best way to get in touch with me and the rest of the community around this podcast. We have a ton of fun out on Discord. We have weekly challenges. We have a coins inventory that you could spend coins from those challenges on prizes, both digital and physical. It is a ton of fun. I encourage you all to check it out. I also encourage you to check out our Patreon. It is patreon.com slash classic gaming today. If you want even more classic gaming today goodness, including an exclusive bi weekly podcast expansion pack, patreon.com slash classic gaming today is where it's at. I'd also like to give a shout out to our Pantheon patrons. They are. ISO, Rich Senewal, David Morton, and Sam Twardowski. Thank you guys for supporting the show. Thank you all for supporting the show, whether you contribute monetarily or simply listen on a regular basis. I truly do appreciate all of the support. For anyone who may be new, welcome. I’d just like to give a brief overview of the anatomy of an episode because for the most part, all of our episodes follow a very similar format and structure. We will always start by talking about the history of the game in question, the historical context, how was the game made, why was the game made, and then we move into a pseudo-review kind of section. And I say pseudo-review because it's not like we assign numerical rankings or star counts or anything like that, but we do talk about every single game from several different perspectives. We take a look at the graphics, how does the game look? The sound and music, how does the game sound? The narrative and or story, if the game has one, Playability and controls and overall feel. What does it feel like to play the game today versus when it was released 2030, maybe even 40 plus years ago? We do all of that to reach a verdict as far as how well the game holds up today. And to do that, we assign each game to one of several categories. At the very top of our list is the Pantheon of Classic Gaming. If a game reaches the Pantheon, you know it is that darn good. It is a certifiable classic. You should go out of your way to play those games today. Just beyond the Pantheon are our golden oldies. These are still really good games. I still highly recommend you play them, especially if you enjoy the genre that we're talking about. By all means, go for it. They're not quite Pantheon level, but they are still really good experiences, and I still highly encourage you all to play them today. Beyond the golden oldies are our mediocre mentions. This is where we start getting into the realm of games that I cannot recommend to the broad population. They might have aged a little bit, might have had a couple of issues to begin with. You may still have a good time, especially if you enjoy the genre in which the game lives. By all means, give it a go. But I cannot recommend these games to the broad gaming population. And then beyond the mediocre mentions, we reach the footnotes. These are the games that are best left in the annals of history. I have played them, so you don't have to. I cannot recommend anyone play these titles today. They have either aged incredibly poorly, or they may not have been all that great to begin with. With that out of the way, we're going to start talking about the game of the day. That is Broken Sword. Broken Sword, or Circle of Blood, depending on where you live, was a third-person point-and-click adventure title developed by Revolution Software and published by Virgin Interactive back in 1996 on the Microsoft Windows computer platform with ports to several other systems following in later years. Before we can talk about Broken Sword, though, we need to talk about Revolution Software and the game's creator, Charles Cecil. We've talked about both Revolution and Cecil before, specifically during our episode on Beneath a Steel Sky, but just to provide a short recap. Revolution Software was founded in 1989 and immediately set off to create adventure game titles, similar in style to those created by the big industry heavyweights of the time, LucasArts and Sierra Online. Their first title, Lore of the Temptress, which released in 1992, was a worthwhile first effort, but would ultimately serve as a stepping stone to better things to come. The one major innovation introduced with Lore of the Temptress was a brand new game engine that Revolution would end up using for many of their subsequent releases, the Virtual Theater Engine. For those who may not know, a game engine is effectively the framework upon which a game is built, and is typically designed to drive a degree of standardization and consistency across multiple releases, while at the same time providing portability between a variety of disparate computing platforms. Each engine has their own benefits and features. And around the time the Virtual Theater Engine was released, Sierra and LucasArts each had their own adventure game engines that were being used for their internal development. Sierra had evolved from their original Adventure Game Interpreter, or AGI, engine to their new Sierra Creative Interpreter, or SEI engine, which offered better graphical capabilities, a true mouse-driven point-and-click experience, and an icon-based user interface, with actions being represented by various icons on the screen. LucasArts, meanwhile, had developed their SCUM, or script creation utility for Maniac Mansion engine during the creation of Maniac Mansion back in the late 80s. That engine would evolve over time, but around the early 90s was focused on providing a point and click experience similar to Sierra's offerings, but would instead focus on a verb driven interface to perform actions where the available actions like talk, use and pick up would be represented on the screen as text, allowing users to click on the verb and then an environmental or inventory object in order to interact with the game world. Both the SCUM and SCI engines were pretty much top of their class when it came to adventure game experiences in the early 90s, and most other developers could only hope to match the quality and features of LucasArts and Sierra releases. I mention these other engines because, with the creation of the Virtual Theater Engine, Charles Cecil and his team developed technology that not only mimicked the best features of both the SCI and SCUM engines, but also took things a step further, introducing the concept of artificial intelligence into the game engine through characters that would move through the world on their own agendas, as opposed to being stationary and only available on single screens or situations. Beyond that, the Virtual Theater engine would introduce the concept of non-player characters and game objects taking up physical space in the game world meaning that if a non-player character blocked the entryway to a door, you wouldn't be able to navigate past him or her until they moved. This led to situations where a character might say automatically in-game something like, excuse me, as you pass by, which served to heighten the realism and experience of playing the games built upon that engine. So... Even though it's less well-known than its industry counterparts, the virtual theater engine was an important piece of technology, and while Lore of the Temptress wouldn't utilize all of those features to great effect, Revolution Software's next title, Beneath a Steel Sky, would go much further, introducing a sidekick character that could effectively be used across various situations to solve puzzles, talk with, and get clues, and otherwise act as a nearly constant companion throughout the game. From a technology perspective, Beneath a Steel Sky had built upon the engine to great effect, utilizing both the artificial intelligence and virtual space features to drive personality into the game world, while also including hand-drawn comic-based cutscenes by Dave Gibbons, the creator of the Watchmen graphic novel, to further distinguish itself. From a story perspective, Beneath a Steel Sky would offer a mix of comedic and serious elements, which based on my latest playthrough, really worked for me. Turning our attention to the man behind these games, Charles Cecil, from the very beginning of his career, was interested in constructing a strong narrative for his games, oftentimes looking to Hollywood movies for structural inspiration while, at the same time, understanding the differences between an interactive medium, like games, and a passive medium, like film. In fact, Cecil once said that Hollywood directors have it easier than game designers, in that they plan and create their content for what will ultimately be unchanging linear consumption, meaning when you watch a movie, the story, settings, and characters don't change based upon viewer choice. All of those elements are set up front by the director, so he or she knows that when someone watches a movie, they're going to get the same exact experience as someone else watching the movie in another part of the world. Game designers, by contrast, do not have that luxury, as they have to plan for players to do any number of different things, like visiting locations in different orders than expected, taking actions that may or may not lead to a furthering of a narrative, and numerous other considerations. In this way, game designers have to plan for numerous conditions that can potentially occur. Which means the complexity of piecing together a game with a meaningful narrative driven by player actions increases dramatically beyond most linear storytelling methods like video. I mention this because when Cecil worked on the story for Beneath the Steel Sky, you could see the strong desire to create a powerful narrative. A message that was both deeper than it originally seemed and one that would hopefully resonate with players. To deliver that narrative, Cecil decided on dialogue and situations that would represent a mix of the comical stylings of LucasArts and the more serious situations of many Sierra titles, like I mentioned a minute ago. This mix, which I freely admit did not resonate with me the first time I played the game, was actually incredibly well done, and upon further playthroughs of the title, I came around to Cecil's unique blend of serious and comedic elements. And by the way, if you do want to learn more about my overall opinion on Beneath the Steel Sky, I encourage you to check out our episode on it. Anyway, in the eyes of many gamers, myself included, Beneath the Steel Sky was a quality experience and it represented a huge leap over its predecessor. But despite a fair degree of critical acclaim, Cecil and his company, Revolution Software, had not yet found the holistic big picture that could potentially let them truly compete with the industry heavyweights of the time. The pieces were all there, but they hadn't been meaningfully integrated yet. Before we continue, I need to take a step back and talk about the game development process, which for longtime listeners may sound familiar, but I want to make sure we're all on the same page. When studios develop games, they oftentimes have multiple projects in various stages at any given time. Sometimes a game might be in active development while the next game is being conceptualized, and given the time that it takes to create a game, it's not uncommon for game ideas to come up and then be shelved until the company is ready to work in earnest on their next title. I mention that because the initial concept for Broken Sword, which would be Revolution Software's third release and the one immediately following Beneath a Steel Sky, was conceptualized by Charles Cecil back in 1992, which was right around the time Lore of the Temptress was released and was two years prior to when Beneath a Steel Sky would make its way to market. At the time, though, the game was pretty much just an idea. Cecil wanted to create a story involving the Knights Templar, and he was so intrigued by the idea that he began to do research on the secret of society, including visiting Paris, which is where he wanted to base the game, and reading the book Holy Blood, Holy Grail, which itself was focused on the Knights Templar and other quote-unquote secret societies who were all involved with keeping the secret of the Holy Grail intact. After having read that book, Cecil was convinced that the Templars would make a strong basis for his next game, and with that concept in place, he began working to bring that vision to life. Though before we go on, I want to go on a brief tangent to talk a little bit about the aforementioned book and its influence on film and adventure games, which might be a bit of a surprise to some. As I was researching this podcast episode and came upon the fact that Cecil read Holy Blood, Holy Grail and had, as a result, decided to use the Knights Templar as a key storyline component of Broken Sword, I immediately recalled that this was not the first time I had come across that book. In fact, the first time I remember learning about that particular work was after Gabriel Knight 3 released in 1999, as Jane Jensen had discussed the inspirations behind that game's story, indicating that it was heavily influenced by Holy Blood, Holy Grail. Being the huge Gabriel Knight fan that I am, I actually purchased and read the book, and for a good year or so, I became deeply interested in the lore and backstory behind the game. I won't go into details here because I can guarantee we'll have future episodes on Gabriel Knight eventually, but I'll just say that I found the whole concept incredibly intriguing. But I mentioned this not just to talk about my personal experience. But more so to point out that Jane Jensen and Gabriel Knight, by extension, have gotten a lot of credit in the gaming community for popularizing some of the concepts from that book, and even the novel The Da Vinci Code has taken inspiration from those same general concepts. Though for his part, Dan Brown, the author of The Da Vinci Code, has claimed that Holy Blood, Holy Grail did not serve as the source of any of his research for the book. Whether that's true or not, only he knows. Regardless, it turns out that Charles Cecil had similar inspirations, and with similar storyline elements being defined, a full seven years before Jane Jensen's work, and over ten years before Dan Brown published his novel. Now, it is impossible to determine if Cecil's eventual work on Broken Sword did in fact influence those future titles, short of someone coming out and saying that yes, it was an inspiration. But I find it interesting that at least from my perspective, Cecil doesn't get enough credit for his early work and the potential influence it had on others. Mild tangent aside, Cecil, as stated, began working on Broken Sword in earnest shortly after finalizing the concept behind the title, that being the focus on the Knights Templar and the fact that the game would take place primarily in Paris. Wanting to continue to enhance the quality of his game's narratives, Cecil, along with Dave Cummins, attended a film writing course in preparation for scripting the story for Broken Sword, which is a testament to his desire to really push the genre beyond the traditional narratives prevalent in adventure games. Cecil also conducted extensive research into both the lore and the setting for the game, taking multiple trips to on-site locations to make sure that not only was the story appropriately researched, but also that the world that the game takes place in felt real. In this way, Cecil believed that the world itself would effectively become a character in the game, and that level of detail would help players to become even more immersed in the gameplay experience. The drive to make a more engaging experience was also reflected in Cecil's overriding vision for the project, which was to create a game that had strong pacing and narrative complexity, but still had comic beats that could offset some of the more serious tones throughout. This is, interestingly, very similar to Cecil's concept behind Beneath a Steel Sky, which was itself an attempt at making an in-between game, so to speak, meaning that it wouldn't be as comical as LucasArts games, but wouldn't be quite so dire and serious as some of Sierra's titles. This was something Cecil experimented with in Beneath a Steel Sky, and here, Cecil was determined to refine his approach. So, he worked to create Broken Sword with a similar, albeit more film-inspired, approach to the narrative. I'll withhold my final verdict for how well Cecil accomplished his vision until later on, but suffice it to say, Broken Sword was designed to be a dramatic evolution from his prior efforts. Nearly everything about the game was intended to be improved, owing in large part to the fact that Revolution Software was in the process of moving beyond their freshman efforts and were, at least from my perspective, establishing their own culture and personality as a studio. In doing so, they would set out some foundational concepts that would carry them through the development process for Broken Sword. While we've talked about the focus on narrative, Cecil was determined to drive excellence into every aspect of the experience, once again taking inspiration from film-based techniques, which is what led him to contacting a film and television composer, Barrington Furlong, to score the music for the game. For anyone who might be unaware... The process for scoring music for games is quite different than creating music for less interactive, more linear formats like film, because you have to take player actions into account in order to truly create an engaging experience. We have seen various development studios account for player agency through the use of proprietary music and sound engines that effectively create tailored soundtracks dynamically based on the actions of the player, with a prime example of this kind of mechanic being LucasArts' IMU system, which allowed for themes and background music to change as players interacted with the environment or left and entered various scenes. It stands to reason that taking a film and television composer and asking him or her to create music for an interactive medium might not work as well as expected, but it turns out that Barrington Falong immediately began thinking about how best to make his cinematic orchestral techniques work within the confines of a game. Recognizing that games are interactive, Falong set out to compose his music in a way that would lend itself to the interactive nature of the medium— writing over three hours of music, along with 400 distinct musical cues that would be used throughout the game and would play when certain actions were taken by the player, or when certain story elements were triggered. In this way, Broken Sword would employ a very similar system as what was used in LucasArts' iMuse engine, with the difference being that Broken Sword was a fully orchestrated experience, as opposed to relying on music synthesis and MIDI, or Musical Instrument Digital Interface files, as was prevalent in many games of the time. The team believed this would lend a degree of sophistication to the entire experience and would make the story feel even more cinematic than what the narrative alone could allow. Similar attention was paid to the art and animation in the game, which Cecil decided to work in conjunction with Don Bluth Studios to create a hand-drawn cartoon style that was reminiscent of classic animated films. Don Bluth Studios was, as you might recall, the powerhouse behind multiple animated film releases, such as An American Tale and All Dogs Go to Heaven, and was also the studio behind the creation of one of the most revolutionary, at the time, full-motion video games released for arcades in the early 80s, that being Dragon's Lair, which incidentally we devoted an entire episode to previously. The visuals for Broken Sword were intended to combine hand-drawn techniques with digital sophistication, so the team at Don Bluth Studios actually began the process of creating the game's backgrounds by drawing pencil sketches of each scene, which would eventually be scanned in and digitally colored using Adobe Photoshop. Overall, the style of the artwork tended towards realism over goofy LucasArts-style visuals. While the game's art was certainly cartoon-like, it was definitely a more mature style, with characters and settings that were, for the most part, based on real-life proportions rather than caricatures, almost like Disney animated films of the 90s, where there might be fantastical elements in a given film, but the characters tended to be more realistic in appearance. And because of that style, the game represented an evolution beyond the traditional pixel-driven artwork prevalent in many adventures of the time, and instead intended to create an experience that felt like playing a pseudo-realistic, interactive cartoon. Voice acting followed a similar high standard, with professional actors being cast for nearly all speaking parts, which was, again, a way that Revolution Software was attempting to distinguish itself from its peers. Now, that's not to say that other companies weren't exploring the use of trained voice actors in their games, but Cecil recognized that if he was going to deliver a standout experience, all elements of the game would need to have a similar level of quality, so he didn't want to skimp on the voice acting talent. Main character George Stobart was played by a man named Rolf Saxon, while Nicole Collard, a secondary character who George interacts with throughout the game, was played by a woman named Hazel Ellerby. While they may not be household names... Both deserve a ton of credit for the success of the game, in particular their ability to deliver lines that alternated between comical and serious. Further, the chemistry between the two actors, and by extension the characters, felt completely believable. This was one of the elements that Cecil was particularly focused on, as he wanted to design a story that had a main character, Stobart, and a secondary protagonist, Collard, who would be able to provide information, insights, and otherwise act as another major player in the game, albeit not a controllable character, at least not until the Director's Cut release years later. We've seen this kind of situation in games before, with the most notable example being the Gabriel Knight series, where Gabriel had his trusty assistant, Grace Nakamura, in a very similar role to what Nicole Collard would play in Broken Sword. We also saw a similar kind of setup in Cecil's prior game, Beneath a Steel Sky, with Robert Foster's robotic companion, Joey, so it's not like Cecil was creating something entirely new here. It's not clear if Cecil simply took inspiration from his prior work, or if perhaps the Gabriel Knight-Grace Nakamura dynamic influenced George Dobart and Nicole Collard. But regardless, his efforts and focus here were noteworthy. While we're talking about characters and voice acting, it's important to talk about character dialogue, which is another way Broken Sword was designed to be different than most other adventures of the time. Rather than present text sentences or responses that represented exactly what a character would say... The game instead allows players to choose from a list of icons that represented the topic that would be discussed by the characters. In this way, you were never totally sure exactly what you'd be asking about or how you'd say it when you interacted in a dialogue between two characters. In most instances, primarily key topics that served a specific story-driven purpose, the conversations were designed to provide the kind of responses you might expect. But that conversation system was also infused with a number of comical elements, as the game was designed to allow you to pretty much talk about all of your inventory items with every single character you converse with. Because you never knew exactly what your character would say, this provided an opportunity to introduce comedy into the experience without affecting the story beats that were, generally speaking, a bit more serious. The voice acting complemented the comedic nature of some of those inventory-based oddball dialogues and created an experience that was different than most other games, which the team hoped would add some degree of charm to the experience. Taking a step back and looking at all of the ways Broken Sword improved over its predecessors, it is fairly obvious that Revolution Software as a company and Charles Cecil as a designer evolved over an incredibly short period of time. Their first game was released in 1992, and Broken Sword would be released four years later. It's a testament to the innate talent of everyone at the studio that they progressed so dramatically over just four years, and also a testament to the fact that they truly poured their hearts and souls into the creation of their titles. I don't believe Revolution Software gets enough attention, especially in comparison to Sierra and LucasArts, but for true adventure game aficionados their early work in particular compares very well to the standard bearers of the time. One aspect of the game that we haven't discussed yet is the puzzle design, and for good reason. This one is probably going to be a little bit divisive amongst the community, if only for one particular puzzle that has, interestingly, become synonymous with unfair adventure game puzzles. I personally take exception to that, but before talking about the elephant, or more specifically goat, in the room, let's talk about the puzzle design in general. When Cecil set out to begin creating the puzzles, he knew he didn't want to create situations that were nonsensical or relied on slapstick situations. Instead, he wanted to create puzzles that were based in the reality of the game world and would both be logical from a general perspective as well as fit within the structure that he had created across the character setting and narrative. In an interview, Cecil explained that creating such puzzles was actually more difficult than the zany type of puzzles you might see in other games, as there's a thin line between creating something too logical, and therefore too easy, and creating something that is still logical but also provides the aha moment that adventure gamers love when they complete a puzzle. From many gamers' perspectives, Cecil succeeded in his goal, as nearly all puzzles in the game are often cited as feeling purposeful, making sense, and following a similar structure. I say nearly all, though, because one puzzle in particular, the goat puzzle, has gotten a reputation for being, at the same time, one of the hardest puzzles in an adventure game, as well as being one of the most unfair puzzles in an adventure game. The interesting thing here is that the puzzle itself is neither hard nor unfair with respect to all of the other poorly designed puzzles across myriad other adventure titles. The puzzle solution didn't involve a convoluted sequence of events that only the designer could have possibly devised it didn't involve insane logic or brain melting correlations and connections and it didn't even involve manual dexterity the solution to the puzzle basically involves two clicks and that's it so why does this puzzle get such a bad rap amongst so many people According to Cecil, the angst over the goat puzzle relates to the fact that the quote-unquote grammar of the puzzle is different than all of the other puzzles in the game. In other words, across the majority of the game, puzzles follow a similar rhythm, whether they involve inventory manipulations, environmental interaction, or some other solution. The goat puzzle, by contrast, introduces a new mechanic of sorts that isn't found in any other puzzle in the game. So, when most players arrive at the puzzle, they assume that it will follow the same rhythm as they've been conditioned to expect. When that doesn't happen, there's an immediate perception of unfairness because the game didn't prepare them for the change in direction. In short, it goes against expectations. I'm not going to spoil the solution of the puzzle here, but I would urge those of you who have played the game to reflect upon the solution given all of the other horrible puzzle solutions you've likely seen across countless games, and then consider, Was this really that unfair of a puzzle? I'd argue that it was, in fact, ingenious, and that upon reflection, the fact that it defies expectations is what makes it a surprisingly good puzzle in a game full of good puzzles. I know that opinion won't be held by all, but if you've felt wronged by the goat puzzle in the past, take a look back at it with a fresh set of eyes and see if you still consider it unfair given experiences with other adventure games. Goat puzzle aside... Broken Sword was released to both commercial and critical success in 1996, selling over 1 million copies by 2001 across multiple platforms, including Windows and Mac-based computers and the Sony PlayStation console. As with many successful titles, it spawned numerous sequels, and as of this recording, the Broken Sword series consists of five distinct games and is, from a sales perspective, Europe's most successful adventure series, selling 6 million copies across all titles. The love for the games, and in particular the first title, Shadow of the Templars, and its immediate sequel, The Smoking Mirror, would eventually result in the creation of updated versions of each title being released in 2009 and 2010, respectively. Speaking specifically about the first title, which is what we're really focused on for this episode, the new version of the game, dubbed the Director's Cut, released in 2009 and had a number of improvements over the original release of the game, including new artwork by Dave Gibbons, a more fleshed-out story via additional segments where Nicole Collard was controllable as a character, and the addition of first-person perspective puzzles that served to increase immersion into the game world. This version of the title would be released across multiple platforms, including the Nintendo Wii, DS, modern computer systems, and the iOS ecosystem, and would be, once again, met with critical and commercial success, selling over 500,000 copies on Apple devices alone. And the good news for fans of the Broken Sword series is that the story doesn't end there. Just last year, Cecil Ad Revolution Software announced a brand new entry in the Broken Sword saga entitled Parsifal Stone to be released at some point in the near future. And beyond that, a brand new remaster of the original Broken Sword is expected to release sometime in 2024. It is definitely a good time to be a classic adventure game fan, and I'm excited to see what kinds of adventures George Stobart will get himself into in the future. As an aside, this is not the first time Revolution Software revisited one of their older series, as several years ago they released a sequel to Beneath a Steel Sky, entitled Beyond a Steel Sky. While the game itself made the leap to more of a three-dimensional adventure experience as opposed to the classic 2D visuals of the original, it still maintains some pretty solid point-and-click adventure gameplay. I'm not sure what Broken Sword 6 is going to look like, but I think I would be happy with whatever style Cecil and the team comes up with. I'm just happy a new Broken Sword is on the way. To say that the first Broken Sword title was an important release in the history of adventure games would be an understatement. This title represented the rapid evolution of a studio led by a man with grand artistic and creative visions, who with this release, would finally figure out how to create an integrated experience that would stand the test of time and resonate with players. Since release, it has been included on countless best adventure games of all time lists and remains, in the eyes of many, an outstanding entry in the adventure game genre. And even more than that, is definitely one of those gaming experiences that will likely be fondly remembered forever. are now going to shift to start talking about what it feels like to play Broken Sword today versus when it was released, oh geez, almost 30 years ago, 28 years ago. So Broken Sword is, at its core, a very traditional third-person point-and-click adventure title. As with most games in the genre, you control a singular protagonist, in this case lawyer-turned-tourist George Stopart, who is thrust into a unique situation due to an unforeseen event that has more behind it than what it seems, in this case the bombing of a small Parisian cafe. From that point on, which is literally the opening cinematic for the game, you will explore a number of different environments, talk to a ton of different characters, solve various inventory and world-based puzzles, and become involved in a world-spanning mystery involving secret organizations and a plot to take over the world. So yeah, pretty much your standard point-and-click adventure experience but to simply call Broken Sword another point-and-click adventure title would be terribly reductive. While Broken Sword may not necessarily deviate from the traditional adventure game formula, what it does do is take that formula and polishes it into a nearly perfect shine. So, let's take a look at the various aspects of what makes an adventure game an adventure game, and talk about how Broken Sword creates something that is unique simply because of the mastery in which it implements those various features. First though, a quick note about adventure games in general. It stands to reason that there are a huge variety of adventure titles out there, and not every one of them follows the same formula. What I'd like to talk about are the elements that, from my perspective, make up the stereotypical adventure game. For me, those elements are world navigation and interaction, puzzles, narrative, and dialogue, and we're going to start by talking about world navigation and interaction. Many adventure games provide large, multi-area worlds within which players can explore, most of which use some form of in-game map to assist with travel. And here, Broken Sword is no different. As you start the game, you're presented with a series of different locations across Paris which you can choose to visit, or not visit, as might be required by your investigation. As you progress throughout the story, new locations open up, and eventually you explore beyond the confines of Paris, traveling to such countries as Ireland, Syria, Spain, and Scotland. What makes Broken Sword unique is the sheer quality of each location you visit, which all feel as though they were recreated from an idealized, painterly version of each location. Walk around Paris and you see the quaint city side streets, elegant hotels, and museums. Visit Ireland and your first stop is an Irish pub, followed by a trip to an ancient castle. Stop by Syria and you're greeted by a series of merchants all arranged as a street market of sorts. In every instance, Each environment and location feels like you're truly exploring the real geographic landmarks that the game is fictionalizing. And every inhabitant you interact with feels appropriate and accurate given where you may be exploring. The actual act of exploring each location is simply a delight with a number of hotspots that provide the opportunity for additional flavor text while at the same time having excellent telegraphing for which items are usable and which are simply there to provide additional context to the location or your adventure as a whole. You use your mouse to explore each scene and the game uses a very simplified and streamlined interface that makes the act of exploration accessible to pretty much anyone, while still feeling as engaging as any other adventure title with more complicated control schemes. All of the interactions in the game are effectively context sensitive, meaning you don't need to select what action you want to take on a given object. The game defaults to the type of actions that most make sense given the situation you find yourself in. So, for example. If you mouse over a door, the use icon will automatically appear, and if you click the left mouse button, you'll automatically open the door. If you mouse over a person, the icon will change to a talk icon, and left-clicking will begin a dialogue with that person. If an object can be picked up, the icon will change to an image of a hand picking an item up, while if you move your mouse to the edge of a screen or scene, your icon changes into a pointing finger, signifying a change in location. Your mouse cursor for any non-usable interaction is the typical magnifying glass, which basically means you can examine an item or hotspot. And that's effectively it, which at the end of the day, is really all you need to do pretty much anything you may need to do in an adventure game. The cool thing here, though, is that the right mouse button is effectively a dedicated examine button, and this is where the game begins to show just how lovingly it's crafted. Every single object or hotspot in the game that can be interacted with has some right-click examine narration associated with it, and all of those examine narrations are entirely different than the left-click narrations that may accompany an action. Even if that left-click action is itself examine, the left-click examine is a different narration than the right-click narration, which means for every hotspot, there's effectively double the content to learn about. And considering the general high level of interactivity across every scene in the game, that is a lot of additional content. That additional content extends to the game's dialogue system as well, which is both traditional as well as entirely unique when compared to other adventure games. Similar to games like Toontown, when you converse with another character in the game, you're not presented with a series of text-based dialogue options to go through one by one. Instead, you're presented with a series of icons, with one row at the top of your screen representing your inventory, and one row at the bottom of your screen representing topics or ideas that you might want to ask about. What makes the game unique is that you can ask every single character about pretty much everything, from the silliest inventory item to the most serious plot point, and every character has unique responses for everything. You know how in many adventure games, if you ask a character about something that they don't have information on, they simply say something like, I don't know anything about that. And you know how in many adventure titles, that response is repeated for pretty much any item you ask them about that they have no information about? Well, that is not the case in Broken Sword, as everybody has unique responses for literally everything. I cannot tell you how impressed I am that the game's designers took this into account. You can literally ask some random person about a soggy tissue, and not one of them will completely brush you off. They all respond as though you're conversing with a real person, meaning they respond the way someone would typically respond when asked about a soggy tissue, most often with individualized disgust, though occasionally with some special inside knowledge that eventually serves to expand your knowledge of the game world. It's a small touch, but it makes the game feel incredibly more polished than many of its contemporaries. You won't know what you've been missing until you play Broken Sword, and then compare it to other adventure titles. But once you do that comparison, you'll realize that Broken Sword is a cut above many other titles. Those extensive dialogues feed into both the game's overarching narrative, as well as its puzzles, all of which are almost universally excellent. Now, I would be remiss if I didn't call out a few potential misses in the otherwise stellar game design. For one, you can, in fact, die in Broken Sword, and depending on the sequence of when you perform certain actions, some of those deaths may feel a bit unfair. Now, granted, this isn't some Sierra death trap kind of experience, and the number of spots you can truly fail are few and far between. But they do exist, and I would urge caution if you're trying to play the game like a modern adventure title, because there are no autosaves or checkpoints. If you die, and you happen to have not saved your game recently, you're pretty much out of luck. Which is to say, make sure to save the game periodically. There are no dead end states, so you never have to worry about missing something, but because there are some events that can lead to your death, it's a good idea to have some form of backup available to you. The second item I have to mention, because it's kind of infamous at this point, is the Goat Puzzle, which we did talk a little bit about before. I don't think there's a single person that has played Broken Sword that doesn't have an opinion about the Goat Puzzle, and even across the adventure game landscape, the Goat Puzzle is considered one of the most difficult puzzles in adventure game history. The thing is, though, the actual puzzle, and I use that word in quotes, is incredibly simple and really only involves a click of the mouse. Like we talked about, the difficulty here is driven by the fact that the specific interaction you need to solve the goat puzzle is entirely different than every other interaction you've learned about in the game world, meaning that the game didn't really do anything to teach you up to that point that such an interaction was possible. So oftentimes, players wouldn't even consider to do the thing they needed to do to solve the puzzle. Obviously, I'm being pretty vague here because I'm avoiding spoilers, but suffice it to say, I do agree that the GOAT puzzle may be a little bit on the unfair side simply because its solution differs from how you've been taught to interact with the game. Is it the hardest puzzle ever? No, not by a long shot, but it is certainly one whose reputation has at least a degree of reality behind it. Anyway, hopefully it's becoming obvious that what sets this game apart isn't unique mechanics or innovative control schemes but more so the mastery of the traditional adventure game formula and as we'll talk about in a couple minutes that mastery extends to pretty much every other aspect of the game we're going to talk more about those specific aspects of the game in just a couple minutes but first as we often do we have to take a look at the back of the box because as you all know I love taking a look at the back of the box for these games. I love learning how different companies marketed their titles and tried to get people to actually buy their games. Around this time, we didn't have pervasive, always available information. We didn't have YouTube with gameplay videos. A lot of times, our decision was based on maybe magazine reviews that we may have read or what was written on the box. Did the box itself look cool when you turned it over? Did it write something interesting or did it give you something interesting and cool screenshots that made you think... I want to play this game. So for Broken Sword, Shadow of the Templars, the back of the box says. Uncover the identity of a jester assassin, unlock the legend of the Knights Templar and unravel a plot as twisted as the catacombs you'll be prowling. As American in Paris, George Stobart, you find it odd when an accordion playing clown darts out of a cafe clutching a briefcase. Moments later, you're sent flying from the force of a massive explosion right into a sinister world of intrigue. The coveted contents of that briefcase? A fiercely guarded manuscript penned by a clandestine medieval order, the Knights Templar. Steal it back before a group of megalomaniacs fathoms its mysteries and overturns the very balance of life. Features an intensely twisting, turning epic based on the controversial historical legend of the Knights Templar. Completely hand-painted by artists formerly of the renowned Don Bluth Studios *An American Tale and Laserdisc Games, Dragon's Lair, and Space Ace. Feature film quality animation. Scored by acclaimed composer Barrington Furlong, who did Nostradamus, and intuitive, easy-to-use interface. And then there are a few screenshots on the back of the box, which basically makes the game look like a very interactive cartoon, and I have got to say, this box totally sold me i did buy broken sword back when it was released and i did enjoy it i never really played it all that much back then i played it maybe halfway through back when i was younger i didn't fully play it through for the first time before several years ago but the box itself absolutely sold me the storyline sounded unique the screenshots looked amazing this is one of those games where the box definitely helped to sell the experience So now let's start talking more specifically about different aspects of that experience, and we're going to start by talking about the graphics. Broken Sword looks absolutely phenomenal, with every scene and character in the game taking on an artistic quality, so much so that if you take a screenshot of any given scene, you would be forgiven for mistaking it as artwork, and honestly, the back of the box kind of proves that theory out. Seriously, the game looks so good, and from the very beginning of the experience, there was such attention to detail that I'd often linger on various screens just to take in the visuals and appreciate the artwork. And that artwork, unlike many adventure games, is actually fairly complex, as scenes are all designed to feel real and lived in. Interestingly though, the game still maintains its ability to telegraph which items and objects are likely usable, and which ones are simply background features. This is a big deal for an adventure game, as trying to figure out what to interact with is oftentimes challenging, which is why many adventure games have strived over time to simplify their scenes, to help draw players' attentions to specific elements and, in the process, avoid unnecessary detail that doesn't serve to progress the story of a given title. Broken Swords artists somehow struck a balance between scene detail and telegraphed object and hotspot interactivity, and it worked amazingly well. Beyond the normal in-game graphics, the game also employs several cutscenes, which were effectively a mix of cartoon-like visuals and unique art styling that feel perfectly at home within the construct of the game. I cannot say enough good things about the game's visuals. It is simply beautiful to look at. Moving on to the sound and music... Not to be outdone, the sound and music in Broken Sword are both phenomenal, and the music in particular conveys such a wide range of emotions, depending on the scene, that it feels almost like a film score. I loved the swells of music that played when you figure out a particularly challenging puzzle or scene, or when something mysterious happens, or if you're facing a dangerous situation. All of those and more provide opportunities for the game's composer to really expand the number of emotions that the music can convey. And in all instances, that music is perfectly tailored to the action occurring on the screen. This is the kind of soundtrack that I would listen to outside of the game. Not necessarily because of how memorable each theme is, but because each theme conveys such nuanced feelings that as soon as I hear a given theme, I'm automatically whisked away on an imaginary trip to Paris or Ireland or wherever. Many game soundtracks are high quality musical experiences, but not many game soundtracks can perfectly represent the place they are intending to represent as well as Broken Sword does. Moving beyond the game soundtrack, Broken Sword's voice work is superb, with every single character having, from what I can tell, an appropriate dialect given the geographic region they are meant to be representing, and each line of dialogue being delivered in a believable way. There is no doubt in my mind that professional voice actors were used for the majority of the voices, as they sound absolutely perfect. My only critique is nothing to do with the quality of the voice acting, but more to do with the quality of the audio and computer technology available in 1996. In the original version of the game, different character voices can sometimes sound a bit compressed and occasionally clipped, which serves to make those specific lines sound lower quality than what many of us are used to today. This is simply a factor of the recording technology available to the development team back when the game was made, and in no way did that lower fidelity sound hamper my enjoyment of the game. There were occasions where I was glad to have subtitles on because the music and voice could sometimes conflict with each other, making it difficult to figure out the specific words a character was speaking. But this was not a major issue at all, and if anyone plays the Director's Cut edition of the game, you'll find that the sound there is dramatically smoothed out in comparison to the original. Even beyond the dialogue, the sound effects and overall sound design in the game are stellar. And here I'll relay one specific example. At a certain point in the early game, you'll be standing on a street having a discussion with a flower lady. In the background of the scene, cars whiz by on a busy street. As those cars move back and forth on the street the sound of cars driving pans gently right to left or left to right, and the feeling of seeing those cars move back and forth with the sound following them as you would expect in the real world is a very simple effect, but one that once again shows the development and design team's extreme attention to detail. And that attention to detail pervades nearly every aspect of the game. Bottom line, overall, the game sounds great, and I have next to no complaint about anything to do with Broken Sword's auditory environment. Moving on to the narrative and story, you play as George Stobart, an American lawyer on vacation in Paris. One day, he's sitting outside a Parisian cafe, sipping a cup of coffee, when he notices an old man with a briefcase enter the cafe, followed by a clown with an accordion. Shortly after, the clown emerges from the building, briefcase in hand, and runs down the street, followed by a massive explosion at the cafe that ends up killing the old man and nearly killing you. As you begin surveying the scene, you meet a couple of bystanders, including eventual sidekick and French reporter Nico Collard, which kicks off a world-spanning adventure involving mysterious organizations like the Knights Templar, a series of seemingly related assassinations, and a potentially world-altering event that could affect the balance of power across the entire globe. It's up to you to solve the mystery, prevent any further destruction, and effectively save the world. I'm not going to beat around the bush. I loved, loved, loved this story. Every single plot point and narrative beat felt amazing and was very reminiscent of any number of adventure films you might have seen on the silver screen. There was a level of maturity to the dialogue and story, while at the same time being pretty darn funny, that I found myself chuckling more than once at some of the lines different characters spoke. This, from my perspective, perfectly represents the evolution of Revolution Software into a leading adventure game development studio. With Lore of the Temptress, they were experimenting. With Beneath the Steel Sky, they were refining. And with Broken Sword, they finally perfected their craft, and it shows. The story deftly combines comedy, seriousness, and nuance to create a narrative that is engaging and interesting, and I found myself wanting even more lore and story as I played the game. There's plenty of lore included here already, but it's a testament to the quality of the game's writing and overall plot that I still wanted to experience more of it. From my perspective, this is one of the best stories ever penned for an adventure game. It is simply that good. Moving on to the playability and controls, we already talked a bit about the overall controls, so I'm not going to rehash all of that here, other than to say that the interface is streamlined in comparison to many other point-and-click adventure games of the time, and that streamlined approach to controls and world interaction serves to make the game engaging and approachable by nearly anyone who knows how to use a mouse. And when those people play this game, they'll realize that its design and overall structure feels 100% modern, despite having been created almost 30 years ago. This is one of those titles that plays and controls like any other high-quality adventure game, and even surpasses most of them. I have literally no complaints here, though if I wanted to be critical, I will say that many of the puzzles were a bit simpler than what you're likely going to be used to with other adventure games. I don't consider this a bad thing, as it keeps the story moving at a brisk pace and ultimately makes the game feel more like a cinematic adventure, which I thought worked exceedingly well. But if you're more interested in having your wits tested, I think you may find Broken Sword a tad simpler than what you may want. I should also mention that while our focus this episode is on the original release, I have played the director's cut of the title, which cleans up the graphics, improves the audio quality, and adds in several additional scenes, most prominently a sub-narrative that allows you to control Nico Collard doing various things that are only hinted at in the base game. While I enjoyed the extra story and lore... Some of those add-on sections contain very traditional adventure game puzzles that feel a little out of place in comparison to the base game's more grounded, albeit simpler, puzzles. As an example, one section has you figuring out how to open a door, which ends up involving a sliding piece kind of puzzle that, while fine for what it is, is a distraction when compared to the normal puzzles in the game. I felt like the director's cut was Revolution Software's attempt at addressing some of the feedback around simpler puzzles in the base game though I don't know that they entirely hit the mark with the redesign. Regardless of my opinion on some of the new additions to the director's cut, the base version of the game remains excellent and feels as modern as any other high-quality adventure game you may decide to fire up. So overall, how did it feel to play Broken Sword? Well, honestly, Broken Sword provided me with one of the more fun, engaging gaming experiences that I've had in a while. If you're an adventure game fan... This is a must-play, and even non-adventure game fans should give it a try. It feels amazing, looks outstanding, and sounds phenomenal. It is, to put it simply, one of the finest adventure games ever created. So, as we talk about our verdict, it probably goes without saying, but Broken Sword is 100% without a shadow of a doubt, or a shadow of a Templar, the newest entry into our pantheon of classic gaming. And it's not even close. In fact, I'd argue that Broken Sword isn't just one of the best adventure games of all time, but it is also one of the best games ever created. I know adventure games aren't everyone's cup of tea, with some people preferring games with more interaction and faster-paced action than what adventure games typically provide. I totally get that preference, but I'm telling you, you need to play Broken Sword. It is one of those rare gems that transcends its genre, And it's time to become something truly special. And as such, I have no reservations about awarding Broken Sword a spot in our pantheon of classic gaming. That was our episode on Broken Sword, Shadow of the Templars. I hope you all enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed creating it. If you'd like to reach out, let me know how I'm doing. Provide feedback, comments, suggestions, or just talk about classic games and technology in general. I would love to hear from you, and there are a few ways you can reach out. I have an email address, which is ClassicGamingToday at gmail.com. I have an X account with the handle at ClassicGamingT, and we have a Discord server. The link is in the show notes. Discord is the best way to get in touch with me and the rest of the community around this podcast. We have a ton of fun out on Discord. We do weekly challenges. We have great discussions. I highly encourage you all to check it out. I also highly encourage you all to check out our Patreon. It is Patreon.com slash ClassicGamingToday. If you want even more CGT goodness, including an exclusive bi-weekly podcast expansion pack where we talk about literally anything to do with gaming and sometimes even build on the episodes we do here on the main podcast feed, patreon.com slash classic gaming today is where it's at. Before we sign off for the week, I do want to mention that our next episode is going to be focused on the Sega Genesis title, Kid Chameleon. So if anybody has any particularly fond or not so fond memories of that experience, definitely let me know. At the same time, I recognize you're likely listening to this podcast on any number of podcast services. And if you would feel so inclined, it would be great if you could leave me a review. This is not about bolstering star counts. This is not about trying to harvest a ton of five star ratings, though. If that happens, awesome. It means we're doing something right. No, what it's really all about is trying to gather the feedback necessary to make sure I can deliver the best possible podcast I can. We get new listeners every single day, which is absolutely awesome. The only way to make sure that I am hitting the mark and giving you all the content that you want to listen to is to let me know what I'm doing right and what we might want to consider changing. I am dedicated to making this the best possible podcast I can, and I certainly hope you all come along for the ride. We'll be back in around a week with our next episode focused on Kid Chameleon. Until then, remember, sometimes the games of the past are just as good, if not better, than the games of today. Goodbye, everyone.